Welcome to the Brett Boom Podcast. I'm the voice of the cast. My name is Dan Levy, and with me is the Golden Glover, the Silver Slugger, the All Star. Ladies and gentlemen, Brett Boone. Brett, what's going on, man? Hey, Danny, how you doing? Doing okay. What uh, What's new with you? What did you What have you been up to these days? Have you gotten out of the house lately? Wednesday, I went to the mailbox. Look at and, you. Uh, that's a weekly thing. It's pretty exciting. Let me ask you: are, are we fully dressed? Are we doing the bathrobe thing when you go to the mailbox? Is it uh you walk, you walk out to your own entrance music when you hit the mailbox. No, it is uh, very low-key. Pair of sweatpants. Yeah, I'm fully dressed, showered the whole night. What do we what Wow, do we you, really, you, really, you really work your way up to a, a mailbox, huh? Shower. Uh, that, that's impressive. I didn't know somebody got, a, got more than business casual for a mailbox. I like it. Nope. Yep. All right. Well, speaking of impressive, our guest today is a very impressive one. Well, spent his entire career with the Houston Astros, the only Major League Baseball player in history to have six consecutive seasons with 30 homers, 100 RBIs, 100 runs scored, and 100 walks, a four-time All-Star, 1991 Rookie of the Year, Gold Glover, three-time Silver Slugger, and in 2017, he was enshrined in a Cooperstown. Ladies and gentlemen, Jeff Bagwell. What's up, Jeff? And Dan, how we doing? Good, man. Good to have you on. Good. I'm, I was kind of listening to you talk about Booney walking outside to the uh, mailbox with walk-up song. That'd be kind of that'd be interesting. <laughs> I think that'd be pretty <laughs> that'd be awesome. Cool. <laughs> Maggie, what's going awesome. on? <laughs> hey, Booney, what's happening, brother? How you doing, man? Uh, it's I'm good to talk good, to you. Man. Thanks for coming on the Boone Podcast. Grew up in Boston. You went to Hartford. Got drafted by the yep. Red Sox. And still, you know, we get to trade deadlines every year, and and. Jeff Bagwell's always brought up almost like, you know, the Ryan Sandberg and, and that trade that was made for, for prospects that never works out. I'm sure back then, you know, it was probably a big blow to you. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm speaking for you right now, but growing up there, going yeah. to Hartford, getting drafted, getting drafted by the Red Sox, you probably had a different feeling at the time you got traded as to when it was all said and done. Yeah, you know, being a Red Sox fan uh, my whole life, my whole family, you know, uh, is from Boston. I was living in Connecticut. I got drafted by – I actually had an all-star game, a college all-star game in Fenway Park the day I got drafted. I got home, and my dad threw a Red Sox jersey at me and said he got drafted by the Red Sox. So, obviously, a dream come true. I went down to Winter Haven, Florida, um, played a half season in A-ball in the hottest place in the world, Winter Haven, Florida, and then – I went to Double A, which was in New Britain, Connecticut, um, which was 30 minutes from my house. So, you know, I'm making my way up to Boston. Um, so that 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 was a cool deal. But to be drafted by my my favorite team and and to kind of be in that organization was it was a dream come true. And you know, the trade, you know, I, I'm in uh, Albany, New York, playing the the Yankees, and we had to win one game out of three to make the playoffs and. Butch Hobson was throwing stuff, and he comes over and says, he goes, I can't believe this, they traded you. And I said, well, what the hell does that mean? He goes, we traded you to, uh, I said, to who? He goes, to Houston. I said, for who? He goes, Larry Anderson. I go, who's that? He goes, he's a reliever. I'm like, holy cow. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm just playing baseball, man. I'm not thinking about any of that kind of stuff. Like the week beforehand, he says, hey, I'm pushing for you to get a call up. I'm like, call up to what? He's to the big league, you idiot. And I said, oh, whatever, man. And you know, when that happened, I was just—I was just like, "Holy cow!" And then my father came, had to come to uh, Albany and pick me up and bring me back, and 
kind of that was when he started to say, hey, man, you know, the Red Sox, I mean, excuse me, the Astros had a tough year last year. Ken Caminiti was the third baseman. He had 240-something. He goes, you got a chance. Um, so it was just kind of a weird deal. And it was for a young guy straight out of college, you know, I found out about the business real quick. Yeah, and I think, too, you know, you're kind of in that category now. Not too many people, and I don't know if we'll see it again, but, you know, the Larkin and the Ripken and, and Tony Gwynn, yeah. where you, you played your entire big league career in Houston. And I think, yeah. you know, I think it's I think it's a cool thing because you went, you know, in the age when we played our generation, uh, it was kind of the age of free agency. And and you found a way. And because of it, you're probably the, the, the face of the Houston Astros, along with a couple a couple guys we'll mention later. But but um, you got through all that free agency and you remained an Astro. Yeah. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. Well, it, it was important to me. Um, you know, Craig and I played our entire, Craig Biggio and I played our entire career together. Um, for me, 15 years, I think Craig played 19 or 20, but it was a common goal for both of us to stay there. You know, we would, in our contracts, we would move money around to make sure we could make it more affordable for other players to come there. But the main thing uh, when you, when you're playing with one team for your whole career, that it, it has to be two ways. The organization has to want you and the player has to want to be there. And you got to make some sacrifices, maybe take a little less money. Um, but in order to do that, you know, you have to have both. You can't just have it one way or the other. And we were fortunate enough and I, I loved Houston and it just felt like the right thing to do. And I was coming up on free agency. I had one year left in uh, 2000 and they wanted to sign me to a multi-year deal. And you know, I was like, there's no way they can pay me. Um, you know, and I'm thinking about, I'll go back to the Red Sox. I was thinking about going to San Francisco to play for Dusty Baker. And next thing you know, they gave me a bunch of money. And I said, okay, cool. And I'm here. And it felt right. Uh, and it just worked out perfectly for me. And, I, and I'm proud of being there. And I know Craig is too, that, you know, it's not often that guys, like you said, you know, the Larkins and the Ripkins, that you get to play George Brett, that you get to play your entire career with one organization. So, I'm happy about that, and I think the city's happy too about it. Your stance, where'd it come from? Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, let's let's I'm not talk quite about sure. that. <laughs> I used to I used to mess with my even when I was a kid. My Carlos Stremski was my favorite player, and he used to mess with his stance all the time. But he was left-handed, so I tried and do it from the right side. And then as I got older, I loved what Don Mattingly did, and I kind of stood up a little bit and kind of squatted before the pitch came. And I would come out of it a lot, and that's why I, I hit all these balls with topspin. Um, and so I hit a lot of doubles, but I didn't hit a lot of home runs. I get to the big leagues. I'm messing around with my stuff. We're in San Diego in the end of 93, I believe. And I asked Tony Gwynn for a bat, and Tony Gwynn, gave me a bag, which I still have here, that says, bags, keep the same stance. And I was like, wow, okay. So I said, okay, Tony Gwynn gave it to me. Let me see what Tony Gwynn does. So he kind of spreads out a little bit just to keep his head still. So I said, okay, I'll try that. So with a little bit of tinkering, and I came in 94, and that's when I started doing that, where I didn't go down, and I just tried to keep my – and my whole focus was – keep your head still, stay down. If I stay down, that means I won't come up. I won't hit with topspin. And then I started to get a lot of backspin on the ball. Hence, that's where my power came from. I always had power, but I just didn't know how to use it. Um, but I figured Tony Gwynn had the best. But the problem was, if you look on tape, my hands drop and my foot actually steps backwards a little bit. And I have no clue how that happened. So 
it kind of worked, you know, and, and I'm, I'm one of those dudes that I'm like a half empty guy because <clears throat> it's so freaking hard to hit that I'm always kind of trying to tinker with something with my hands so they wouldn't drop as much, but that was what I got. And that's what I went out there with. Yeah. I mean, it, it was, it's such a unique stance, but you, 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 mentioned you step backwards and a lot of yeah. us because for for the average guy the 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 normal big league hitter when we get into trouble is we get everything going forward, forward. and and i yeah. used to watch it i'm like baggy man he steps back it's awesome because he never gets that forward and, and um, you got going forward sometimes but it of course. But it was kind of a smaller deal because you had that built into your stance. I was always from the other side. I finally settled into a stance at around 2000. And I was yeah. the opposite. I, I, I was, you know, I was not the tallest guy in the world. And I'm thinking, how do I create the most? How do I create the most leverage? Well, I got to stand almost like I'm standing on my tippy toes. Yeah, but, you cut that so, on your so that's, too. That helped a lot, too. <laughs> yeah, but, <laughs> but man, my my, I had the same thing as you. My hands dropped, and I, and I'd watch other yeah. players, and I'm like, man, I, I envied them because they kept their hands there, and I just couldn't I do it. But uh, I know, I, you know, it, it's I what works. It's different. Season. Yeah, it, there's so many different ways to do it, and I tried every off season to stop that. And then once I get in the game, it all goes back to the same way. So. Like you said, we keep trying different things, and there's no one way to do it. You stood straight up and down. I was in the crouch, and I laugh because I look at pictures of myself, and I tell, like, somebody comes over and says, can you sign this? I'm like, do you, do you see what I'm doing here? I said, I couldn't hit nothing right there. I was spread out about 10 feet, and I really only had, like, four feet of width because I couldn't, I couldn't hit. I was going forward, so I figured I'd, get out, I'd spread out higher and I'd get lower. I'm like, it was so messed up, but, you know, we do what we have to do to, just to, you know, get, our, get the barrel to the baseball somehow. And I'll tell you, when in my time in Seattle, uh, my first round of BP, and I, mm-hmm. I never told you this, but I used to do a baggy impression, and I would also do the Edgar with the hands up twirling. And that first round off a of BP pit, I'll tell you, I was I was thinking I could hit like this, you know. And I'm thinking, <laughs> well, shoot, baggy hit 46 last year. Maybe it'll work for me. Edgar's got you know two batting titles, one of the greatest right-handed yeah. hitters of our time. But I'll tell you, I never had the balls to break it out the season. But I was, no. I was really good in the cage. But uh, no, it's, no, I know it's, it's true. interesting. I did the same thing with Manny Ramirez. I said I want to hit like Manny Ramirez with the leg yeah. kick and all that. And I'm like, I'm trying that. And I'm going. You got no chance of doing this thing. And we're always going to go back to what we're comfortable with, whatever that might be. I got and, and going on that. I, I had one of the greatest lines by Stan Javier, who used to be a. Um, an outfielder used to play, but he was more of a platoon guy for us. Play outfielder. Yeah, I, I played with him in 01 in Seattle. Did you? Yeah. So he used to watch me and he came up to me one day and he goes bags. He goes, listen, keep the, keep the stance that God gave you today. Meaning if you're, if your foot, your front foot is in their other dugout, go with that today. Because if you're thinking about that, instead of hitting, you're never going to get a hit. And it kind of made sense. We just kind of have to go with what we got that day. And then to be honest with you, all we're trying to do for four or five at bats is compete as hard as we can. And that's, that's all I tried to do. Uh, all right. You, uh, so, so you retire post-career, you went, uh, you did a little stint as a hitting coach with, with Houston. Yeah. Nowadays you're, you're working with Houston and, and, uh, more of a management position 
tell me a little bit, because I, I worked with Oakland for a few years at the minor league level. And to be honest with you, I really enjoyed working with the kids. Mm-hmm. How do you like w- working with the, uh, the players of today? Uh, do you do any work with the minor league side? Is it strictly big league side? Is it, is it, are you down, you know, down talking with the players or is it more of a management type situation? No, I, I mean, what I enjoy, just like you, Booney, is I, I like talking to the players. I, I go to the ballpark probably around two o'clock and I stay there till four. And then I go home and watch the game because I, I can't see what I want to see in the stands or in a box or anything like that. But being with the guys, my, my role for that part of it is, I go in there for moral support and, and head games, basically more of a little bit of a psychologist. I let them know not about how many home runs I hit. and what I, I don't talk about that shit. I talk about my failures, what they're going through, and, and what I did to try and get out of that, to make slumps a little bit less than, you know, instead of George Springer going in a three-week slump, I'm trying to get him to go into a 10-day slump, if that makes any sense, to be able to get out of that. And a lot of that – in in baseball, when you get to the big leagues and as a hitter, you know as well as I do, it's all mental. We all have abilities to do different things, but it's the guys that mentally can can either get over at bat at bat, make an adjustment either in bat or the next at bat, those are the guys that are successful, and that's what I try and give to those guys. To, to Hey, man, the umpire made a bad call. So what? You know what I mean? It's don't make that – don't ruin your at-bats. Don't quit. George Springer had a habit of quitting. Like he had to see him drag his bat back to the dugout. I'm like, George, anytime you swing the bat, it could be a three-run homer. And he's gotten so much better at that. When I see those kind of things, those are the things that I really enjoy by helping guys. Uh, and then I, you know, I have to deal with, you know, <laughs> analytics and listen to guys talk about expected batting averages and hard-hit balls and all that. I continue to tell them the same thing. It doesn't matter. If you pull the back of your baseball card up, those are, that's what you hit. You're supposed to hit 300 because they say that. Well, what? guess what? You hit 220. <laughs> so there's another nice part of it. Exit, exit velocity, spin rate. In our day, what would we have done with those, with those metrics? I mean, it's, it's kind of almost like a foreign language to me when, you know, my son will come to me and say, dad, you, my exit velo is getting to, and I'm like, velo, uh, we use the word, we use the word velocity and now it's velo. I can't use it. I will not use that word. It's he, he, yeah, he throws hard or he's got good velocity. That's it. Or, you know, he's been right on a slider. No, he, does he have a good slider or not? It's, I don't want to hear about that other stuff. Not that difficult. Don't create more problems in your head. The last thing we need to do when we're hitting is think. And you know that. When, when we're going good, what do we think about? Okay, I want to get this pitch. And guess what happens? We get it. And guess what we do? We hit it. When we got all kinds of stuff, our hands, our feet, um, whatever, you, we got no chance. It's too hard. Me and you have talked, you know, at, at yeah. decent length about this, that mental side and, and how yeah. important it is. You know, I, I wonder sometimes because I'm kind of, a, you know, when I played, I, I, I wanted as much intel as I could get. I wanted all the video I could get. So, sure. you know, today's today's players, you know, I'm kind of envious in a way because everything's at their fingertips. And, if you know, if we were to pull into Houston right now on my laptop, I can sit in my room and go over your entire staff, your entire bullpen. Yep for the last month. So, so I envy him in that way. But like you said, hitting is so hard at this level. You did it at a hall of fame level. I did it at a really good level, but it's so hard to, to think of all these things. And, and the questions I get from young players today about angles, it, it's like, man, I don't, I don't know how you deal with all this. Hitting is so hard. No. It's, it's trial and error. It's tinkering with this in the this batting cage. It's almost like it's too much. 
Yeah, I think that the, the best line you said there, Booney, was trial and error. And that's what we do. It's trial and error every day. And the, what I tell the kids are, listen, you can go do your cage. And I'm not a big cage guy. It just wasn't my deal because my swing was so messed up. I hit the bottom of the tee. I mean, I'm awful. So I would tell them, okay, you do your cage work. You do your video work and do whatever you can. Once you leave the on-deck circle, you have to forget everything that you thought about beforehand and trust in the fact that everything you worked on will show up in the batter's box. But don't get in there, start thinking about your hands, your feet, and all that. Just think about competing and getting the pitch that you want to do or the situation that you have in the game, what your job is to do. That's when you'd be successful. But if you're carrying all those, uh, oh, if I hit the ball hard, I mean, if I, if, I, if I hit a line drive to second, I run past first base, and I go, oh, I hit that ball hard. What? I don't want to hear that. I wish I broke my bat in 40 places and it landed right over the first baseman's head. I mean, we're, we're trying to get numbers, not numbers, but we're trying to get results. And I, I, all I care about is you're doing everything to compete in that at bat. You can't think about all that kind of stuff because it's too hard. Like you said, Booney, it's at the highest level that we're facing. And by the way, there's eight guys in front of us that can catch our stuff. <laughs> yeah. So we can do it all right and still make outs. Tough game. And, yeah, it, it really is. And, and man, sometimes that, that clear mind, and as you know, and when we're going good and when we're locked in, we leave that on yeah. deck circle and we're clear as a bell. We're skipping the home plate. But those are far and few, <laughs> yeah. few between, man. We're usually, we're grinding out there. That's 162. Yeah. And even on, you yeah. know, think about it, even in some of your best years, that's a long haul. It really All is, right, I want to. I want to move on okay. to, uh, you know, from a fan's perspective. I would. I would assume, you know, sometimes different than a peer's perspective. You, you, from a fan's perspective, you're you're Jeff Bagwell, the guy with the stancy at home runs, Hall of Famer. But to your peers, mm-hmm. and I and I can speak to this. You were known as one of the best all-around baseball players in the game. And I say that, you know, obviously complimentary, but I don't think people knew. I appreciated for sure. And, and, and my peers appreciated, you know, other than the home runs and the RBIs, it's like Baggy runs the bases, man. Like, like Ricky Henderson level. Uh, he plays a great first base. And, and I just always, you were so smart. And, and I know I've mentioned this to you before, but I have a story about Jeff. This is for the, for the Boone podcast fans. I was at first base one day and I said, Baggy, damn it. I, I, I know I'm just as fast as you. I said, but every year I look up and you got 20, 25 bags and I got nine. And I remember you told me, you said, run when they least expect it. When the pressure's on that pitcher and he's so worried about that hitter, that's when I go. You told me you run 3-0. And it really, it really dawned on me. I said, that makes a lot of sense. But, but uh, speak a little bit to, to the base running. How important? I know we've talked about it. And, and what comes to mind to me, the last great team that just ran the bases was the 2002, and I think Socia was really kind of famous for really, really making his team run the bases and work at running the bases, mm-hmm. and and how putting pressure on the defense makes a difference. Yeah, it, it's it's very important, um, and I preach this to the young kids too. And I think I think the biggest thing, Booney, is base running to me is an attitude and it's awareness. And your job when you get to say you just get to first base. Your job is, one, you don't need to go through all the people you want to thank and all that kind of stuff. Your job is to figure out, if you're on a team that runs a lot and stuff like that, figure out what the signs are. 
know who's pitching, know what their times are, which you get from your first base coach, know who's hitting, know all those things, know your outfielders. Is your center fielder left-handed? Okay, if he's left-handed and the ball's hitting to the right center field gap as a base hit, do you really think that he can catch the ball, spin around, and throw me out at third base? No, there's no chance. The window of that is like 2% that he can throw me out. So those are little things that you have to realize. And you have, I think the biggest thing I tell this all the time, in baseball, especially in running the bases, your first thought is always right. And in life, your first thought is generally wrong <laughs> because we make so many mistakes in life. But in baseball, our instincts is our first thought. And generally in those, you have to have those because if you think about I'm, I might be out, you will be out or you won't go. And so your job is when they, whether there's three outs or you score a run, what do you do for your team? Do you go first or third? That puts an easy one on your, the hitter coming up. I can just hit a fly ball. I might be able to hit a ground ball. He feels good about his day. He went 0 for 3 with an RBI. Feels like he helped. Team, team, you get a run, and then the team gets a run. It's a win-win all the way. So if you think like that and you get everybody to buy into that concept, what you, what you said, Boney, is putting pressure on the defense. You can never relax because we're always trying to take that extra base. And I think that's important. I think that's what we did as an organization. And I, don't know, I, I just think it's a part of the game that sometimes gets forgot. And I, I watch it on TV, and I'm like, how is that guy not on third base? It's because he's not thinking about what's going on in front of him. Right. And, and as a defender, I mean, that used to, because I would always preach to my teammates, run the bases aggressively, put pressure on yeah. these outfielders, you know, especially the outfielders that have the great arms. You know, they're not used to people running on them. All of a sudden, oh, you run right in run their face. Huh? Those are the easiest ones to run on because they right. want to throw it as far as they can. And they can't hit a cutoff man, they throw it in the stands. Exactly. And I tell people, I said, these guys aren't that good. They got cannons, mm-hmm. but they're not good at coming up and throwing a one-hop bullet to throw you nope. out at the plate. Put pressure. I remember as a second baseman, and this was a night infield in, and I've got a guy like a Joan Figgins for the Angels on third. Yeah. Well, I know this guy. I know he's going on contact, and I know he's going to put pressure on me if it's a you know medium hit ball. Yeah. i got to come up and fire a strike, and if I don't do everything right, he's going to score and almost embarrass me for being infield in. That used to give me nightmares, and I, and I used to yeah. think, man, this is how we need to run the base. You put enough pressure on the defense constantly – <laughs> Even me That's and you, Maggie, we'll make we'll make mistakes. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, and you're a go go second baseman. I mean, you're thinking like that. So, I mean, those are the things that, that no matter even if it's a guy that doesn't run that well, like me, I, I don't run that well. Like I stole bases because I helped one thing that helped me. I was first a uh, first baseman, so I got to watch pitchers all the time and stretch. They will basically tell you in their setup if they're throwing the ball to first base. So I know that I'm standing on the base and they're throwing over and they're going, how's he standing on first base? I said, well, shit, I can see that he's going to throw over about three minutes ago. <laughs> so, I mean, little stuff like that, you pay attention. You look, you know, Booney used to do this when you run too. you, you looking at the catcher, you might be able to catch a sign what they're going to throw. They're going to throw a breaking ball. probably a good pitch to run, you know, stuff like that. Those are, those are things of paying attention and wanting to score runs. You have to want to do stuff. And I think that's, that's the key to try and be good at everything. Um, defense, base running, and all those kind of things to help your team win. Okay, I I, uh, I had Andre Reed on the show. I had and I had uh, Larkin recently on the show, and I asked him a question. I said, <clears throat> "You guys both 
both are Hall of Famers. You went in the Hall of Fame in 2017. And, and I know you well enough. I know your personality. Uh, you, you're not an assuming guy. I mean, I, I know you kind of don't like the attention. But no. lead me up into that. You know, we all start this. We, we all start off as kids wanting to, to play this game. And, and, man, we get to the big leagues, and that's the pinnacle. But the Hall of Fame is the pinnacle of all pinnacles. That day you got the phone call. And I know probably all your buddies are telling you, hey, Jeff, you're getting in. You're getting in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and we kind of all know you're going to make it. But what's it like getting that phone call? Did you have that moment? Andre Reed shared with me. He said, he said Brett, I, I never thought about the Hall of Fame. When I got inducted, he said, I remember putting on that gold jacket. And Gail Sayers coming up to me. He goes, I was just, he said, I couldn't even feel my, my body parts. Did you have a moment, did you have a moment like that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I got close the year beforehand, uh, and then there was a big talk about in 17, and, you know, I had my family over and uh, my kids and all that. It was just us, and, you know, I, the New York phone call, I'll tell you the story. Actually, in 16, when I said I might come in, I'm sitting there, and they had to call between, like, 4 and 5, and at 4.20, my phone rings. Everybody's kind of looking, and I go over to the phone. It's the guy I buy my meat from. Pete's fine meat is the guy. I'm like, you gotta get me. So the next year, I they, I got in, and my family went crazy, and I think it was kind of a relief. And then I think, you know, just my personality. I, I guess I'm like, man, I don't know if I deserve all this stuff. You know, you rush to the, you rush to New York, and you do all that kind of stuff, and then just it takes a while to settle in, and then. You know, once you get to the Hall of Fame there, then you're like, what the heck am I doing here? You know, you got Bob Gibson and, you know, all these great players. And you're like, shoot, what am I doing here? And I'm just kind of sitting there watching everybody. And it's just it, it's an amazing feeling. And, um, you know, it's it's great. But the most important thing, you know, Boney, I, and I'm just like this. And I think probably you are, too. It's the people that you talked about, Edgar, and you had Junior and all those young guys. It's, it's just all the guys that you played with and just so happy that they were part of it to get you there. Astrodome, your whole life you're in a dome and you, and you ended up going to the new stadium at the end of your career. I got to play there a couple of times. What a great place to hit that new stadium. <laughs> but you well, played. Yeah, well, unfortunately, I was hurt for three of those years. But, yeah, that would have been a nice place to hit full time. But I'll tell you, 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 you are always in a dome. And, yeah. and I thought about this before I asked you the question. I'm like, what's it like? You're never outside. And then you probably leave the stadium and you go, oh, yeah, there, there is life out here. I've, you know, I've played in domes. We go, we go places and play in domes. Was there anything to yeah, that? It, I mean, did, it, was it strange? Well, well, yeah. I mean, I'm from Connecticut. And then I, I, I come and I go to the Astrodome. I walk into that place and I'm like, whoa, what is this? You know, because it's a football stadium, too. So I'm like – this is the biggest thing I've ever seen in my life. Uh, you know, I've been to Fenway Park. I went to Yankee Stadium once. But other than that, I hadn't seen really a big league ballpark. And to see that place with the roof and all that kind of stuff, it was just amazing. And, um, you know, I loved the Astrodome. I mean, it was my home. It's, I enjoyed there. I mean, a lot of people didn't like it because they couldn't see and you, you weren't going to hit many home runs and stuff like that. But that was my home, so I was okay with that. And then they built this Enron Field, which is now Minute Maid Park. And I'm like, this is the – I think I still think it's one of the best ballparks in baseball. And if you're a hitter, I mean, especially you too, Booney, right field's reachable and left field's reachable and now center field's way reachable. I mean, that's a, that's a, <laughs> that's a great dream. 
Yeah, when it, when it first they had that that hill in center field, and it was like yeah, four fifty when it first opened. But yeah, they got it's yeah. a, it's a great place, and they they keep yeah. the temperature perfect, and and that oh, dome yeah. is closed when it it's needs beautiful. to be closed. You can't even you can't even tell it's closing. I know it's a great place, man. I think it's great for the fans, and you're starting to see more ballparks. The new Texas ballpark is like that too, and they're making it more cozy for the fans. And it, you know, it's great for us too because we get to, get to be close to the fans. And we touched on this earlier, Killer Bees, you've always been that. And we all know, you know, it's always been Bagwell, Biggio. And then you had some people coming in. You had Berkman for a while. Derek Bell back in the Astrodome Derek days. Derek Bell, don't forget, but he's an original. Yep. But uh, Good people. It, how, how was that? Oh, Killer Bees. Was it old or did you kind of think, no, it's kind of cool? I mean, it was it was a Houston thing. I mean, I never thought it was anything more than that. It was Sean Barry, Derek Bell, Craig, and myself, how it started. And, um, I mean, right it was Barry. cool. But, you know, we're in Houston. It's not like we're mainstream. You know, we're not Yankees, Red Sox, Dodgers, or anything like that. So it wasn't really a big thing. It was kind of a, you know, we were just basically all of us just growing up together. So I guess it was kind of cool. And then, of course, like you said, then you get Berkman and you get Burke, and now you got – uh, Bregman and all these kind of people. So they kind of lump us all together. But it, I mean, it was a neat deal, but it wasn't something that I <laughs> I was that <laughs> concerned about. All right, Baggy, I appreciate it. This has been great. What we do on the Boom Podcast at the end is we have a couple fan questions and we got the voice of the okay. podcast, Dan Levy, coming in. Come on in, Dan. Hey, Jeff. How are you? <laughs> Dan, you're still there. Nice. <laughs> Well, first and foremost, I got to say, as a fellow guy who grew up in Connecticut, it's nice to talk to another Connecticut guy. Exactly. There's not many of us left, I don't think. No, but when I was there, the Whalers were still there. So that, that's probably yeah, one of the... Yeah. I remember the Whalers very well. We used to be able to... I think we used to be able to get tickets for them if you bought like 10 boxes of Cheerios and was able to <laughs> prove it at the stadium. The fight song you got to, I remember the fight song. The Brass Bonanza. I had it as a phone ringer yeah. for a while. <laughs> indeed the questions i'm gonna lob at you not too hard i will say this when you were when you and brett played of course there were different types of scandals even today the houston Mm -hmm. astros definitely had their size their size of a of a scandal as well in terms of how things are handled then and today in terms of how the league handles scandals and the media and social media tell me about the difference of what it would be like in today's game if you guys were playing today and everything was social media up, and everything was right there front and center for you. Well, it would be um, it would be very different. Um, it would certainly curtail our after hours activities. Um, be a little <laughs> bit smarter about what we do. I'm not saying we did anything bad, but you know, it's a difficult to be uh, in the spotlight nowadays. Um, all this stuff is magnified. You know, the social media part. There's people that can write whatever they feel like writing, whether it's true or not there's nothing really you can do about it. Cause you, you know, you could say, no, it wasn't me or what, blah, blah, blah. But you, you, you get it out there. And the, the whole thing of innocent to proven guilty that you can forget about that stuff in any, any part of life. Now you're guilty into, until you're proven, proven innocent. But, um, you know, that's just part of life, man. And you know, you make adjustments. If Booney and I played now, you know, we'd make adjustments, you know, and, and you do what you're supposed to do. Like, I mean, I enjoyed staying in the clubhouse to one thirty in the morning. You know, and as far as the baseball stuff, the steroid issues and all that kind of stuff, that was part of the generation that got a lot of play. And the cheating scandal that happened, you know, that that got a lot of play. But I will tell you, uh, all the play that it got, it deserved. 
Um, and I've told all the, the team well, before they had their press conference, I said, Hey man, you guys got to own this. You all knew about it. It's your deal. And they've been good about it. And it's, it's an unfortunate thing that happened, but you know, those are things that happen in not in every sport and we just deal with it. If we were playing today, we just deal with it. And I guess this is a question for you and Brett. I never, I guess I never really asked anything further than this, but we all knew going into the season that the Astros had a target on their backs. Literally. Uh, Does that extend into next year? Yeah, I, I I don't I don't know if it'll be as bad, but these fans haven't forgot. Um, I think um, I don't think that'll go away for a while. I think every guy that was on that team offensively is in kind of the justifying their careers, which is unfair, but not unfair. If that makes any sense, um, because Perfect. of what happened, people are always going to say that. But I know these guys; these guys are great. Um, it just, it's a bad situation that got worse and, um, you know, they kind of just have to deal with it. The fans will, you know, they're never going to really get over that when you talk, you know, when you get players talking about players, that's a big deal. Um, and I think, you know, it'll, you know, it'll go down a little bit, you know, every year, but they're still going to have to deal with fans next year, hopefully. Yeah. And I think, you know, to, to kind of piggyback on that, I think Jeff hit on a really good note is that when you when other players start talking publicly yeah. about other players that is a big deal uh in our day yeah. we we didn't do that you know i no. we I, I didn't love every player or, or every teammate or every opponent but we handled things in a different way and it wasn't yeah. go to the go to the mic and talk about it we're we'll take care of things on the field uh yeah. i think and and if you look at every scandal, not I'm not going to sit here and be a historian, but if you look at st- at scandals in sports throughout the years, what usually makes that scandal go away? Winning. And I think yes. Houston, you know, you go out and win, you shut a lot of people up. Uh, but I also think a good point was you you carry that pressure with you. Like now, I got to prove that I can do it without you know whatever the whatever the you're, you're accused of doing. Um, but I think next year, yeah. And I think if you, if you play it smart and are smart about it, you can use it to your advantage because, because everybody knows going into a, going into a Houston series, those umpires are aware that, Hey, there might be some bad blood between, between these two teams for whatever reason, the, the, the trash talk, whatever. And if that, you know, if, if you're pitch, if you're a pitcher and you miss up and in and you don't mean to, Right away, those umpires are coming to the Astros. They've got to defend the Astros. So I think if you're a smart player, if you're a Houston Astro right now, I use it to my advantage. <laughs> that eliminates the pitch inside. <laughs> yeah, it eliminates the inside pitch. Use it to your advantage. It's not a don't be a don't be a vic, don't be a victim. So there's my answer, Dan. I, I like it. I like that answer though. It's a good answer because you do it. I, I I told one of the guys this year. He's like, it's hard to get motivated, you know, playing without any fans. I said, well, this is the first time I will tell you. I generally, I tell you to get motivated by what's on your chest, the Houston on your chest. This time, get motivated what's on the back of your jersey, your last name, because right now you gotta you gotta go out and motivate yourself to be the player that you are. So. You know, they can use that to help them. But, you know, they're, they're always, like Booney said, they're always going to have a little bit of that, you know, that second thing where people are going to say, oh, maybe he's not as good as he was because he cheated. And, you know, whether it's fair or not, if it's fair or not, it's still reality. And it, it'll be okay. And Booney's right, too. If we win, that will shut people up. 
I guess the final question I have for you, and I've asked this before from other people too. I feel like you and Brett played in what I consider my golden generation. I know people older than me and people further back will always say, you know, back in the 70s and the 60s. Yeah, of course. But I feel like the 90s, the early 2000s was a time of just nothing but superstar baseball players. I mean, you guys were gods. I, every one of you guys, every team. I mean, you guys were just monsters. And I feel like people would recognize you guys. Today, only a handful of baseball players I could see walking down the street that people would actually garner a lot of attention for. What is it about today's era that isn't garnering that same kind of attention? What is it that players aren't doing or should be doing to kind of keep that marketability as high as it was when I was when I was watching you guys play? Well, I mean, I think part of it is <laughs> most players you know, are, are generally Brett and my size, you know, we're not the biggest guys in the entire world. So we, you know, you're not going to get that much play even now. And even then, but you know, we got, we had, some, we had some interesting cats back then. You had the Phillies back then, which were out of their mind um, back in 93, you had a bunch of different characters throughout the game. Uh, whether you like Sammy Sosa or not, he was a, a bigger than life personality in Chicago, which made him a big personality. Mark McGuire with all his stuff. You always had Barry Bonds, the best player that I've ever seen in person. Um, you know, you got all those guys. Nowadays, guys are more concerned about doing their job, leaving, go and play video games. They, you know, they don't get in much trouble or anything like that. So there's not as many as that. But don't get me wrong. There's some wonderful, great players nowadays. And, um, you know, you got guys like Fernando Tatis Jr. I mean, he, he's going to get recognized walking down the street. I promise you that. You know, and you got some other guys. The game transcends every every generation. You know, you had your 60s guys, your 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000, on and on. There's always going to be great players. No matter what happens, there will always be great players in our game. And I think with, with baseball players in general, we're more normal because we fail so much. You know, we, you know, you failed three out of 10 times and you're an all-star. Well, try, and, try and shoot three out of 10 in basketball or complete 30% of your passes in football. You're not playing. So I just think baseball players in general are more humble. So you, you don't, in every generation, there's great players, but it all depends on the guys that are in that generation to make them recognizable or not. Last but not least, do you have a Twitter handle? How do people get a hold of Jeff? Hell no. No chance. <laughs> <laughs> you cannot find me. I promise. Well, do you have any, do you have any charities or anything that you want to pump? Anything you want to uh, give a shout out to promote or anything you want to uh, let the listeners know what you got going on? No, I really don't. I am um, private. Booney can get in touch with me. That's all I know. <laughs> <laughs> that, he's my social media. I'll tell you that much. Well, Jeff Bagwell, thank you so much for coming on the program. We really uh, appreciate you stopping guys. on. For the former Silver Thanks. Slugger, Golden Glover, All-Star Brett Boone, you can find him on Twitter at, at theboone 29 Thank you for listening, subscribing, and remember, don't just grab the ball and hang on to it. Share this podcast with your friends, your diehard baseball friends and family, those who live and die by this game. We are dishing out some excellent stories from people that you love. So don't forget to share and subscribe and tell all your friends this podcast is definitely getting bigger and bigger. So thanks again for listening. My name is Dan Levy. We'll chat with you guys later. Take care, everybody.